This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Hey guys, Robert here along with our guest Paul Martinez, a former U.S. Army uh, Ranger Regiment sniper. And along with me is Eric Martin and Scott Johnson. Uh, but first we want to thank everyone for all of the support that we've been getting. Uh, we love hearing from you guys, so please keep it up. Send out those DMs. Let us know what it is that you like to hear or just some of the great things that you've already heard on the podcast. Kind of gives, gives us an idea of different shows and stuff that we can do in the future. We've also created a way for you to continue supporting us on an app called Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can head over to patreon.com, pick a tier, and uh, we really appreciate it. You can do a lot of cool things out there by picking those tiers. could potentially get on the podcast. You'll pick up some cool swag from us. And a big shout out to Bram Connolly for kicking that off and helping us out in that regard. Another big uh, announcement is that we're now on Spotify, uh, and for us, that's a big thing. Of course, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, and all those other podcast locations by searching Mentors the Number 4 MIL, but Spotify is another one of those that's brand new on our list. If you haven't followed us on social media, it's always easy. Just search Mentors the Number 4 MIL. And our team room group page on Facebook and LinkedIn are some of the areas in which we put out a lot of information that you won't find on a lot of our other social media, where we're putting out information on videos and material that can help you kind of grow professionally and personally. And if you're looking at doing that, you consider yourself kind of a high performer, then make sure you link up with us on LinkedIn or get on our team room group page on Facebook. So now on to the show. Paul Martinez has joined us a couple times on this podcast. As a matter of fact, I think, Paul, this is your third occasion. We're fourth. I could be wrong. Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and the very first one was with Gun Bunny Actual, Emily, in which yep. we uh, we did a show about um, her as being an Apache pilot in a couple episodes back. Uh, she actually joined us for the second part of that episode uh, where she updated us on our current activities, what's going on with her and everything. But you spent seven years in the U.S. Army Special Operations, uh, primarily all of it with 3rd Bat 75th Ranger Regiment. And yep. as I mentioned at the top of the show, you were a sniper. 2011, you were in Afghanistan when the U.S. made a decision to withdraw from there. And we'll cover a lot of that material during this episode. But first off, just welcome back, man. It's good to have you back on here. Thank you. It's good to be back. Always like being on Mentors. So one of the things we want to do, though, is we talked way back when, when Mike Glover was on the podcast as a host, we went into the whole Ranger contract aspect of this thing. Did you come into the Army with a Ranger contract? No, I did not. I had a uh, an airborne contract, and I really wanted a 18 x-ray contract to go SF or an option 40 contract to go Ranger, but my recruiter was one of those guys who, he went light infantry, and he, you know, he kind of experienced some training fatigue uh, before he could get to rip. And he's like, you know, you're not going to want to go and do that. He's like, I don't want to put you on that damn contract. recruiters, man. I, I tell you. Yeah. And I used so, to be one. That's um, sad, man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was something off about you, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just so jacked up. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I, you know, did basic, went to Airborne, and I realized, you know, there was uh, definitely a higher quality of peers um, as far as dedication and, and willingness to go the extra mile in airborne. So, uh, as compared to just basic training. And I realized the guys that did have an option 40 contract or an 18 x-ray contract, about 90% of them roughly dropped that contract, um, in airborne. And that's of the guys who didn't drop their airborne contract. And so I thought, you know, there's very few people who really want to do this. 
uh, and go the extra mile. So I kind of had a choice. I knew I wanted to continue training and, and get to the most elite unit I could get to, but I also was pretty impatient to get overseas and, and get into fighting. So between that, picking up a, uh, an SF contract and maybe going through a, the entire Q course thing for you know 18 months or a year, I knew I could go to RIP and that would take you know, much less time, maybe two to three months. And then I'd be with the unit training, getting ready to go overseas. So, um, I went to a rip brief sort of on accident. I had orders to go to Italy and my friend was like, Hey, I need a, a, a battle buddy to go to this briefing. Cause he couldn't go anywhere alone. We were just lowly privates. And I was like, I don't know, man, Italy sounds pretty cool. I went to the rip brief and the guys were like, all right, you want to jump out of airplanes with dirt bikes and machine guns, or you want to go to Italy? And I was like, all right, I'm in. Well, you know, actually, (laughs) (laughs) when you lay it out that way, Paul, come on, man. Let's see, Italy or, I mean, there's cool guy stuff. I get it. But Italy, that was a pretty hard choice as well. Um, I mean, you know, 173rd, I mean, they're right in Vincenza. No, you're staking your head no, Eric. You don't don't agree with that? No way, man. You want to go where, where the real fight was. And I was the same way. I, I came in with, an, we called it the RGB contract was what it was called back when, because I'm an old fogey now. It's been almost 20 years since I joined. But yeah, I had the uh, Airborne Ranger contract. But the funny thing for me was, is people were like, uh, what's your MOS? I was like, Airborne Ranger? I had no idea what an 11 series contract meant until I got to basic training. But man, I mean, you're spot on, man. You want to go where the fight was. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing. If you go through all this training, you go through basic. I mean, infantry basic is no joke. It'll smoke your balls. But if you get through that and you've got gas in the tank, get to airborne school. I just get there and do it. And if you get done with airborne school, also a ball smoker, and you've got gas in the tank, go further. Go as far as you can possibly go because you only get one chance to do this. If you don't go on your first shot, uh, the odds of you getting um, a rope contract back when we were in or what's now called a RASP-2 contract where, you know, you've been in the military for a little while and you get to go in as a, a more senior NCO and be a ranger or getting to go to SFAS selection, you know, after you spent some time in the military, your odds astronomically stacked against you. Yeah, I mean, we are talking like if you would have went the Vincenzo route as an example and went 173rd, you probably would have came back, may have got the binning assignment or may have got the option to go to um, try out, as you said, for, for RASP. And at that point, or RIP as it was in that time frame, you're in E5, the slots are minimal because the guys who are there yep. are already tabbed because most of them got tabbed as an E4 in regiment. And so yeah. the odds of you getting in one of those senior NCO or those NCO type slots... Yeah, I totally agree. That would have been yeah. pretty slim chances. Yeah, they really are. They like to raise you, you know, and so taking imports, you really have to go the extra mile. Imports, I like how you to, said uh, that. Yeah, well, I mean, they are. They're from a different place, you know, Yeah. and they're different cultures. So it's very, it's harder to adapt, you know, and some guys do well. The guys that make it, you know, they're usually the cream of the crop. You know, we're happy to have them, so. Well, I mean, let's face it. So, you, well, let's go back before we start talking about RIP and everything. Let's go back into you went to the briefing. So, tell us a little bit about what that briefing was like. I mean, they, they of course they talked to you more about the cool guy stuff, but what was it that they were trying to present to you? And was it very much like a recruiter in the sense of they oversold it? Uh, and when you got there, uh, it was a lot harder than what they had presented. Uh, no, they definitely didn't oversell anything. Uh, the video we watched a video, and then we got a like some bullet points, basically what you could expect of a deployment cycle and a training cycle, what your life rhythm would be like in regiment 
what the expectation was as far as how to get through rip. And then, you know, they showed you some videos of what they did, which was, you know, guys clearing shoot houses and blowing shit up and people like, you know, blowing things up over overseas and jumping out of airplanes and that sort of stuff. And it all looked extremely strenuous. Uh, it didn't, it looked like one of those things where if you're not into it and you weren't already like raring to go, you're gonna be like, no way, no way am I working that hard going through that much more training, you know, and they lay it all out too. They're like, you know, if all of you signed up, I think there were 20 of us in there, like three of you were going to make it. And you know, that right there excluded most of the people who had even considered it. So, uh, it was definitely, it was more like uh, throwing down a challenge. I asked the, uh, they opened the, the floor for questions uh, at the end of the brief and said, Hey, if you, you want to know anything? And I said, is it really worth it? And I'm asking, you know, the C6 Ranger who's probably been on a million deployments and he looked like, you know, GI Joe was modeled after him. Uh, I go, you know, Sergeant, is it, is it worth it for the short deployments, all the extra work and the extra time away from your family and all this stuff. And he just sort of shrugged and he goes, look, man, if you want to be the best, you'll be at rip. And if you want to do something else, like go do something else. And he made it very clear that he didn't give a shit. Uh, excuse me, if he if I went or not. So, uh, you know, that was kind of like, okay, you know, this guy's like kind of challenging me. Like I'm either going to be the best or I'm going to be. Well, not only that, else. but would his personal opinion really mattered at that point? Because are you wanting to hear his opinion of how he feels about it, which may be very different than your own experience and what, so I think in some ways he almost gave you more of an honest answer. What do you want? What, what are you really up for the challenge of? And do you feel like that's something that's cut out for you and you want to actually try and go and do it? But if you want exactly. to, and you're thinking you do, then get on the bus type of thing, you know? And I, I think yeah. I would respect that a whole lot more than trying to blow smoke up my butt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he wasn't trying to convince anybody. I mean, if, and it's the right way, way to go after I'd been in the regiment for a while. And I would talk to guys that were coming in or, or people would ask me, you know, that were in a different part of the service. Hey, how do I get there? And is it worth it? I'd just be like, you know, if you want it, then it's worth it. If you don't want it, then don't even bother. This isn't an... And either or this isn't a, you know, dip your toe in and try it out. Like you go all the way or you don't. So which appeals to the people that make it the very extreme personality touch, generally speaking. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it definitely takes a different breed as we'll talk about. So as you go in through the, uh, the RAS program, a lot of people may not understand a lot about what you guys do in RAS. I mean, it's totally designed to smoke your butt every day. And I'm yeah. talking about physically and mentally, but definitely physically to its extreme demands. I mean, you sleep about on average four hours while you're there at, uh, you know, coal range and some of those things. And maybe we need to get a little bit into to coal range because that's one of the areas in which they're going to smoke you the hardest. And um, probably a third or more will end up dropping out right during that that first night in some cases. Yeah. Um, and when you say first night, you know, that's a little misleading. So the first night starts at about 4 a.m. the previous day uh, with, you know, 65 pounds of gear on your back. And then you just start walking and you don't know how far you're going. You've never been to Cole Range or heard of Cole Range. It's your first time at Benning. So, you know, you just walk and you're walking so fast that I think within 100 meters easily, my my I had shin splints, my calves are burning like I'm dying, just drenched in sweat. It was uh, August, you know, so it was nice and Nice, nice and, and humid, yes. And nice and warm, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, we we started that road march with I don't know how many guys, but about half of them made it. Did you guys still have to maintain the like one arm length in front of the person in front of you too? Yep. Oh yeah. If you fell out of that, like you were gone. They yanked you. Yep. You were like they yank you right out. You know, and if yep. or if you were running, 
you know, and they heard your feet flopping. <laughs> yep. They yanked you. Like, this is a road march, you know. If you're running, you're not going to make it, you know. And now, maybe because you're too loud or because they knew you weren't going to be able to run for 13 miles or 14 miles with a rucksack on. I don't know. But well, they yanked I remember you them. They, they were pulling guys out of their five-mile run, even, if they could hear your footsteps. They're like, if your feet are too loud, you're, you're gone. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, and then, you know, you get there, and you're like, all right, so we're going to do some training. It'll be good. That, that's a little misleading. Uh, you learn about land navigation, and the way you learn about that is basically by living in the woods with a canteen and maybe an MRE for basically the next 24 hours. And, uh, you know, you get really used to having spiders on your face and wandering around in the dark and not finding any points. And, uh, you know, you, you just want to make it back. You and know? and like, you just made it out of basic training. I think that's what shouldn't be uh, forgotten here is that so you, it's not like you've had years of doing land nav and those types of things. You're thrown in this type of situation for a reason. Who, who's going to figure this thing out? Who's going to adapt? Who's going to assimilate? Yep. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of head games as well as physical here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's all a mental game. You know, you never know how far you're going to have to move. You never know how long you're going to have to be out there. Uh, you never know when your next meal's coming necessarily. So it's sort of like... A lot of mass punishment. Yeah, most... <laughs> yeah. Um, in between training, you're, you're just being mass punished. And it might be because, you know, somebody looks stupid with his BCGs on or, you know, like they had that. It had to be a reason, you know, like you didn't you weren't loud enough when you sounded off or you faltered when you were reciting the Ranger Creed or... Yeah. You know, you came in from Land Nav and your seat was ripped or you didn't get to the right point or something, you know. Did they still have you guys go into the uh, wood line to grab quote unquote evidence? Oh yeah. Yeah, we definitely yeah. uh definitely collected some some stuff from the wood line, you know. So you gotta run <laughs> you run there with your rucksack over your head and back, you know, and then you run with your rucksack and you have to drag back a stick, but it's not not any stick, you know, you come back with some little little piece of shit stick and then you're the guy who's trying to get over. <laughs> so everybody gets to go back, you know, next thing you know, like you're going 50 meters into the wood line to find a down tree and you're dragging this thing back and you don't want to be last. So it's sort of like you can't take the little stick. You can't take the big log because then you'll be last. <laughs> so you got to sort of like figure out how to be middle of the road, like, flying under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, oh uh, you know, I think we got, I, I, don't, I think we slept for two hours at Coal Range, honestly. And it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, two PODs after we got there. And they're like, all right, you guys are done digging Ranger graves. You're done grabbing sticks. You're done, you know, doing land nav. Crack open NMRE. We're going to move out in two hours. And you're like, oh, my God. So, <laughs> you know, and then it started raining on us, you know, and you're sitting in a hole that you just dug getting rained on and you're not allowed to just pull out your rain gear they gotta make sure that uh everybody's in uniform so i've heard now you can tell me from guys that went through this that actually going through rip or now rasp in the winter time was much worse that actually the numbers go up more of a higher percentage than those that go through the summertime that end up falling out that first night of coal range yeah i think that's accurate um the the cold you know is bad and you're soaking wet you might as well have gone swimming in your uniform and then gone out and stood in the cold in the wintertime. I mean, it's just brutally cold. Uh, so a lot of guys quit. I will say this though, you know, if you fall out in the wintertime, you're less likely to die. Uh, <laughs> time, you know, if you fall out, it's very likely you're going to get visited by the, the medic and get a silver bullet and, uh, make sure your core temperature is not critical. And typically it is. And then they'll haul you off to the hospital so that you don't, cook your brain and end up a vegetable for the rest of your life right. so yeah, I, think, I think we spent the time calling it cold range 
Yeah. Oh, you went through in the wintertime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it sucked. Yeah. Yeah that, yeah, that wouldn't be good. Now you make it, let's say, to uh, the third week. Let's say you go that far, and I've heard something about Black Monday. Um, you know, I honestly, I was one of the guys that should have gotten a silver bullet, but, you know, I was able to, like, run even though I was blacking out. So I, like, just just kept on going. Uh, so I all of it's kind of a blur. I don't remember which Monday was Black Monday. They all were pretty dark, if you ask me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why, isn't this where you guys end up doing that 12-mile ruck march, and that's what ends up smoking a lot of the people and such? Oh, okay. Um, you know, we did a couple 12-milers, and, uh, yeah, that smoked pretty much everybody. You know, I remember the history test, and you think, like, oh, it's just a, a military history test, and it's designed for people in the Army, so it can't be that mentally strenuous except that you know you might have slept two or three hours you know because you get four hours off right except you have things that you have to study and you have things you have to clean and you have tasks you have to do and you have, you have fire watch so your four hours is very quickly reduced to somewhere around two two and a half and then if you can sleep through the stress and then you get up and you you know you do pt with the guys who just won best ranger and got runner up at best ranger and got like you know third place at best ranger and they're leading pt right. which i didn't know until after i was like man i must be just a piece of junk. I'm just garbage. I'm a garbage person. I can't keep up. You know, these guys are running an Olympic pace for five miles or six miles or whatever it may be. Right, right. So, uh, Matter of fact, I know, think Fourth RTB just took. Uh, didn't they best ranger this this past best ranger? I, I think it was fourth or fifth. I don't remember. It was. It was. Uh, it was one of the RTBs. Yeah. They they just got. So it, there you go. So. Yeah. So just remember that those guys that you have, you know. Uh, applauded and everything running across that finish line and end up winning. Those are your RIs that you're going to see later on if you end up going down the road there and attending Ranger School for sure or, you know, working yeah. with RASP and all that. Uh, I, I can only imagine how robust that history test is now because when I went through, you know, the only things that we really had to focus on was like Panama and Somalia was like the most recent activity really. I mean, there were yeah. a couple guys that had done some stuff uh, over in um, Kosovo or whatever, but most of it was focused on towards like Grenada and stuff prior. And now, I mean, you you know, you, you look at like Petrie and all those other guys that have gone along with you guys and, and become, you know, big medal winners. There, there's yeah. a lot. There's a, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and it's more now it's called RASP. So it's an actual selection process versus just uh, who's going to survive, like who's left standing, which I think is probably better. Um, honestly, I know some Rangers will disagree with me because they like the old ball smoking, but uh, well, it's more the, of a uh, mental. Is evolving. It is. And our and mission your guys' mission definitely evolved too. I, I think when I saw a lot of my friends, because I ended up getting hurt and having to leave regiment. And so like a lot of my friends, when I was over in OEF1 and I was an 82nd guy, I was like, I was like drooling because th then they got to wear the long hair. Because back when I was there, it was like you either were bald or had the four oh, yeah. finger high and tight. That's all I remember. Yeah. Rangers were just, yeah, they had a high and tight and it was shaved. And it had to be that way every day. Yeah. And and airfield seizure was like our main uh, mission op or whatever. And then, you know, we did DA stuff. But then it became more DA focused. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And, you know the skills we needed in country became a lot more diverse and a lot more, uh, a lot less dependent on brawn and, and battle drills and basic infantry stuff. You know, obviously we never lost that and we still haven't, but you know, the units we had to work alongside and the, the roles we had to fill really, we evolved from 
uh, what a lot of people termed back then and probably when you were in uh, hyper light infantry with a, a taste of special operations to a true special operations unit where we're actually, you know, I wouldn't say that your baseline ranger is an operator, but the guys that are, you know, platoon sergeant, squad leader and up, you know, or senior snipers and up, like those guys are real operators that are planning an operation from intel yeah. gathering and, and uh, filtering through that to all phases of the execution of the missions. So no, no that doubt. was a big I, difference. I would say that I was pretty jealous at times. You guys got to work more unilaterally than we typically got to, because uh, obviously then I moved over to 10th group, and yeah. you know most of our stuff is always uh, with indige forces for the most part. But I mean, you, you and then helping like the CAG thing helped out a lot for you guys as well too, because then you guys got to split with their uh, decks, and that oh, obviously yeah. helped tremendously as well as the uh, funding. Yeah. Yeah, the funding was good, that's for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, you guys, you definitely got what you needed. And that's kind of always been the thing with uh, Ranger Regiment is, you know, when you think about the differences is um, you guys get whatever you want. And your whole idea is, is just to go destroy. And, you know, you want something taken out, that's that's kind of the whole objective and the whole mission. And and so after you, I want to get back, though, to after you finish this whole program, I think I've heard a yeah. lot of kids who may be looking at the Ranger contract and thinking that, you know, it's all about wearing that tan beret and everything else. They need to understand that once you put on that tan beret and you put that scroll on, what you just went through in RASP is only a small portion of what you're going to do on a daily basis. You have to keep and yeah. earn that tab every or that i should say that scroll uh that scroll as well as that tambourine every day and if you don't keep yeah. maintaining that standard you're out which is why it's very odd to find somebody like yourself that spends seven years or someone like we both know that has spent like 15 years as an e8 or e7 about to pin on e8 or you know folks that have yeah. done that because the typical time frame that i remember is 36 months and hell if you made it that far you were a celebrity you know, yeah. and a rock star. You usually, I believe our, our attrition rate after you graduate from RIP and you get to your battalion was about 50% in one year. So if you made it through one year, 50% uh, of the guys you graduated with would be gone. Uh, and then in two years, you know, you're down to probably 75% attrition, you know. So it's, uh, it, I looked at it this way, you know, you you graduate RIP and you you got the right to put on the beret and that's when it starts. You know, like you earned the right to walk through the door now you need to read the room and figure out how you're going to stay there. But you're new you know? meat. You're new meat when you walk in oh, the yeah. compound. I mean, and there's no yeah. doubt about it. They yeah. they definitely know how to single you out for sure. And uh, <clears throat> Yeah. So I, I, I remember walking in the compound a lot and seeing, uh, the, of course, this is way back when they, they moved to a different, nicer facility. But you guys didn't have great... The compound then wasn't that great at that time frame. And I remember guys just being smoked all the time. Jeez, I'd see a private come running up to an E6 to tell him something. And before his mouth opened, the E6 is telling him that he wanted to do a push-ups incline and start knocking yeah. him out. And uh, after he gets done doing that, then he may have to start doing squats or something like that. And after he smoked him for a little bit, then he'd ask him, what do you want? Hey, the LT wanted, yep. to t wanted me to tell you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, good. Now do some more damn uh, push-ups before you leave here. You know, Get out of my face, you know, and that whole thing. And it was yep. a constant kind of smoke like that that happened all the time. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you just – and it was good, honestly. The level of fitness that you need to survive there uh, is just a quantum leap above what you're going to get from basic training, conditioning, and airborne conditioning – uh, and you're just a basic PT program, you know, like adapting 
to the guys that have been doing that for five to 10 years is rough. So, you know, the smoking serves a purpose, you know, not only that, you need to know your place. Like, yeah, you might beat your squad leader on a run, you know, and get a little bit of a feather in your cap, but can you get smoked all day long and do it the next day? You know? So (laughs) you you gotta have a strategy. And uh, I remember after about a week, um, maybe two weeks, you know, I, I was just, I felt like hammered dog shit, to be honest with you, just because you're constantly being smoked. And I realized that they were going to smoke me no matter what I did. So if I had to go get my squad leader, because my team leader needed something, I'd run up to him, I'd put my feet up on something and start doing push-ups, and I'd give him the information I needed, or I'd ask him the question I needed to ask. He's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, I'm just doing PT, you know? Like, you can't smoke me if I'm already doing PT. So that way you have a little bit of control over your own fate. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I was dealing with the team leaders that just graduated Ranger School. Oh my God! Yes, they had a uh, big chip on their shoulder, man. They had some pain they needed to let out into the world, and you yeah, were. It was, it was like that coming of age or whatever, though tradition to a degree. Yeah, it really was because I I think back then again, uh, and maybe it still is true. You have to be at least an E four or really uh, hot shot E three or something before you go to Ranger School, or is it E four yeah, and then E five? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how much they've changed it. I know that they, uh, for a while are sending guys out of RASP straight to Ranger school, mm-hmm. uh, just because it made the pipeline faster wow. for them. And also because our retention rate has gotten better after RASP. Um, and that's because our selection process is better. You know, we're not, uh, just getting the guys that can, you know, suck it up and suffer through, you know, like it's, it's harder to be a thinking man at, uh, than it is to be a cockroach and a cockroach can make it through that the nuke getting dropped on them for three weeks or four weeks while you're in rip and uh, if you have to think and do that as well then the high probability you're going to get to stick around so they send them to ranger school right away sometimes i don't know if they're still doing that uh but when i was in you had to be a, an e4 um or an e3 about to be an e4 right and you had to prove yourself you had to prove you were ready to take a team and uh you know that's the right way to be and they, they absolutely should be the freaking meanest, most feared people in battalion because that's where the rubber meets the road, you know. And when combat happens, yeah, when bullets you know, are flying, yeah, you want those guys to make the that kind of call and know what the hell they're doing for sure. And let, let's face it, I mean, when you go through Ranger School, it's really about small unit tactics. I mean, that's that's what the focus really is. And so you want those guys to be the sharpest guys that's uh, leading leading you through combat. Yeah, definitely. And the standards very high. You know, you cannot fail because. You know, it's it's a weird balance of uh, being able to be autonomous and being able to execute orders that are they're given in the blind or, or anticipate orders. You know, that are going to come down. Uh, you know, your commander with his radio, like he's controlling the whole the whole fight. But let's be honest, anybody who's been in a fight knows that it's it's down to two, three, four man teams. And if those guys aren't executing autonomously, if they don't have the stones to follow through and make a decision and be decisive or they haven't instilled enough trust in their team uh, to make sure that they're going to do what they say no matter what, it's going to fall apart. People are going to die. The wrong people. Yeah. So uh, after uh, after you served in in uh, battalion for a little while, and you were assigned to 3rd uh, Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and so after your time in 3rd ba- uh, Battalion, you made E4, you end up going off the Ranger School, and we touched on a little bit about Ranger School, and have talked about it in previous episodes as well, but that's like another smoke fest, and the whole idea there is, again, to put out the best... Uh, the best leaders that they possibly can out of that program. And uh, it's probably one of the premier leadership schools that you can go through, at least in the Army. 
Yeah, I would say that Ranger School is the best combat leadership school that exists. I haven't been to all of them, so I can't honestly say, but you know, that's what the smoke fest is for. You can't replicate the stress of combat, but if you haven't ate or slept and you're expected to execute a detailed plan and you can do it, you're going to be okay, you know. I mean, it's close. It's the closest thing I've ever been to combat. Now, now the back in the day uh, that I remember, of course, uh, there was more phases than what there were today. And actually, the worst phase, people would tell you, who were back in those periods, and some guys might be listening to this, was was the desert phase. And that was, at that time frame, was one of the most hardest. And, of course, what usually knocked out people out of the desert phase was the airborne jump. And when they made that jump in, sometimes the winds and everything would end up messing some people up or jacking them up when they hit the ground because it was was hard as a rock because it's dry and it hasn't rained in a long time period so they end up getting all jacked up so um, i remember somebody telling me before i was going to go off to uh, ranger school and i was actually injured in airborne school was to go as a golf instead don't try to be a victor don't go as a go as a leg because (laughs) dirty legs yeah because you know and then get go through airborne school i know (laughs) but it was because of that whole phase of you know people who end up being uh, airborne you got about a 50 50 chance of surviving the jump in the desert phase and it's you know it it hasn't changed that much even though there's only three phases now you know a lot of guys they get knocked out during airborne operations and you're looking at the at the legs the leg rangers and you're like i gotta jump you just get a walk off the freaking bird like you get an extra- I, I bet that that might change because that that seems kind of like I think now that we're trying to level all the playing fields and all these different aspects, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past to maybe change that uh, one way or the other. Yeah. I, I don't think, I, I don't know. I don't see the point of jumping in ranger school. You know? that, that's the other thing though, too, is like, okay, what, I mean, if we're just trying to prove the land, sea and air thing, I, I know I don't want to get off too much on tangent here, but yeah, yeah I agree, man. Cause I remember I was like, Oh, I want to go ride the bus for eight hours and sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat, eat the snacks you smuggled in. Yeah. Your nasty leg. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so you graduate, I'm going to fast forward here a little bit, you end up graduating Ranger School, you go back to bat and everything. At what point was it that you were selected, or how was it that you then became a sniper, and did you get a couple of deployments before that time frame, or was it something that pretty much happened, you know, bang, bang, bang? Yeah, so I had to prove that I could be a uh, team leader, and in, in my case, you know, it was a 60-team leader. Uh, or that I was ready to be. And then they sent me to ranger school, you know, and that was like, we're going to invest this this school into you. You're going to come back. You're going to be a a small unit leader and you're going to take a team. Then you're going to take a squad. Now, if you can prove, uh, all that after you've got your ranger tab, then you continue on You do rasp two and all that stuff. Uh, so I did three deployments, um, one without my tab went to ranger school because I, you know, you have to have the highest PT test in your platoon or your section or whatever, just to get a chance to go. You do your thing, you get to your school, you come back, and then you start deploying as a as a leader, you know, as a junior leader. Um, so I was going to actually get out of the military. I had a three-year contract, and my I had two team leaders that were going to take over my squad. One got hurt jumping in uh, ranger school, and one had to leave battalion for, no, for other reasons. So, you know, there's nobody to lead my squad overseas. And uh, so I extended for that deployment, and my friend Nicholas Irving saved my life. He was a sniper. And I was dead to rights. You know, this Afghan guy with an AK-47 was about to shoot me in the face, you know, and I just happened to turn and look at him right before he pulled the trigger. And Nick already had him in the scope, zapped him in the right in the brain. 
killed him. And I was like, you know, I've always wanted to be a sniper, and that looked really cool. So, you know, <laughs> I ended up uh, begging for another about six months, just begging and pleading so for them to let me go. You know, but again, my platoon, the mortar platoon had invested in me. They said, hey, we sent you to ranger school, and we need leaders, so we don't want to let you go. And I just, I was like, I'm going to leave, or I'm going to be a sniper. And they finally gave in, and they let me go to sniper uh, selection. And that's sort of like uh, its own selection in and of itself, and it depends on, you know, who's running the section at the time. But for us, it was a physical test. And then also, you know, you got to do some training with the guys, and they see, like, what your mental fortitude is like, and if you're going to be uh, have an aptitude for shooting long range and the kind of work that snipers have to do. And I sort of got along with the guys and I had some, some buddies who were in there and they could vouch for me. So one of the questions I want to ask that came out of that then is, is that, uh, or at least one of the points, and maybe you can kind of elaborate a little bit further is, is, is not just a sniper the school part of it, but I mean, I think what they're trying to weed out too is a, a sniper spends a whole lot of time waiting and so there's yeah. there's a lot of mental aspect. There's a lot of discipline that goes in with that. And there's a lot that goes into understanding math. I mean, you have to understand math, physics, those types of things um, very well. So it's a it's a very uh, different type of breed of individual as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have to be, you know, to be a good ranger, you got to be tough and you gotta be a fighter and you gotta be willing to kill people and to be a sniper you have to be a little bit i don't want to use the word sociopathic but you gotta be willing to plan for a week and then spend three or four days crawling through a swamp on your belly and then digging your own grave and living in it just to look at a guy that you might not get to shoot you know so it's got to be worth it to you in that sense and also you have to be assertive you know because you have a lot of your it's a specialized skill and it's critical to the planning process and what you bring to the table um, is so important that if you can't assert yourself and you can't put that into words in a briefing, then you're not going to be utilized properly. So they might as well not even take you out. And that's what will happen if you're if you're not a good sniper and you're not able to, you know, put your plan into words and do things like that. So it's a lot of there's a lot that goes into it, you know, and, you know, we had guys that were great snipers and they didn't go to sniper school. You know, they we trained them internally. They were great shots. They were awesome. And, you know, the war was on and not everybody thrives in the military education environment. So, you know, uh, is your guys a schoolhouse internally re regiment internally or did you guys go to the army one or because I know like for SF, we've got our own over there at Fort Bragg. But I, I forget like where you guys go. Um, yeah, we, we do all we do a train up um, and we constantly train in the unit. We go to various civilian schools um, and we do a lot of train the trainer stuff. But. Uh, almost every single one of us gets a chance to go to the Benning Sniper course. And if you can't get slots, we'll send you to the Marine Sniper course, or we'll send you to, uh, if you pass one of those, we'll send you to the uh, Special Forces Sniper course, which I got to do. And, uh, you know, they'll basically, if you're if you're passing schools and you're doing well and the platoons you're attached to are saying, yeah, he's doing really well over schools, they'll keep sending you. I spent a whole training cycle just going to different, different sniper schools and shooting courses, uh, you know, and learning everything from, I mean, the ballistic math I learned was in books that thick. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what kind of math it was. Trigonometry, calculus, and geometry, and, you know, weather data. Like, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. it. You were the first ranger to be selected as a liaison instructor to the Special Forces Sniper course as well. Tell us about how that came yep. about. Um, 
dumb luck. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, um, I was lucky. I was trained uh, by some really good snipers uh, in our section, and I went on some deployments that were pretty hot and heavy, and uh, the platoons I went overseas with time after time uh, were the same. So they all knew me, and I got to build a pretty good reputation with them. While I was in, um, when I was stateside, I always did well in the schools they sent sent me to. Uh, they sent me to Special Forces Sniper Course, and me and my partner Stuart were kind of kind of the underdogs. You know, we were the youngest guys, and uh, we were not your prototypical Rangers. You know, like we like trucks in Copenhagen, like everybody else, but not quite as much. You know, that sort of thing. So like, all right, these are our long shots. These are our oddballs. We're going to send these guys, and we actually did extremely well there. Um, I was I had the second highest score in my course. Um, kind of lost it at the end there. I, I was honor grad for, I think five of the six week course. Or oh, six, uh, uh, yeah, you lost I, your buck knife, <laughs> <laughs> I did, I was hurt, man. but I lost it to a guy who had been, he was also, he was a sniper instructor and he'd been in the military for like 13 years. I'd been in the military for, I think five, you know? And so like, I didn't feel too bad about it. Um, then we got to go back with the, um, special forces sniper course. And we led that competition right until the end. We got outshot by um, CAG, of course. That was the 2010 yeah. USASOC uh, sniper competition? Yeah. Yep. So we finished We finished second. And, again, we were underdogs. We were the guys with the least amount of experience, least rank, least time in service. And uh, so they were like, all right, you guys know your shit. Um, yeah, that's was extremely impressive, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I felt really bad that we got second, you know, and I was talking to the instructors because they were kind of rooting for us because we're like the scrappy dog, right? And uh, they're like, no, you guys did great. And I'm like, no, but we lost. And they said, trust me, when you get your free rifle, you know, that you just earned, like, you're not going to feel like you lost anything. And the guys that beat us, you know, they came from our unit to begin with. So it's like, if you ain't first, you're last. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it is. It's a huge accomplishment. Not to toot my own horn. I had a fantastic partner who had shot, you know, he'd shot in the President's 100, didn't quite win it. You know, he'd been doing competition shooting since he was a little kid. The guy's like, He's just a shooting genius, you know. He's a ballistic genius. Well, just to get to sniper school is one thing, but to be able to then go to the competition and place as well as you did, yeah, that speaks volumes. Yeah, yeah. just to get so, to to be selected to go, you right. know, is right. a big deal. Hell yeah! And, uh, you know, just to just to compete on that level, you know, like nobody that goes to the Super Bowl is like, ah, shucks, we suck. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like you get to the playoffs, big deal. You know, you guys did real good. So exactly. Um, yeah, so that allowed me to get onto. Uh, Team Merrill, and, you know, we did really well. We brought everybody home. Um, they were really happy with our work over there, and everybody kind of knew who I was in, in Ranger Regiment, and some of the SF guys at the schoolhouse were sort of keeping track of me. And I thought, you know, my back was, was pretty much broken, and, uh, you know, I knew I was, wasn't going to be doing many more deployments uh, with my health the way it was. So I just sent it, sent a shot. I was like, you know, I would love to instruct here. And uh, I talked to Sergeant Major Merritt and convinced him that it was a good idea. And he said, well, we can attach you to their unit or we can uh, send you as a liaison and you'll you'll remain Ranger. And I was like, send me as a liaison. liaison. Yeah, man, that's, that was the best way to go out of all that, it sounds like. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's hard yeah. to say. As I say, I don't think that they mess around too much with the Range 37 guys over there. No. Behind. No, they really don't. Those guys get to do whatever they want, and they should. I mean, those guys, 
they are the absolute best shooting school on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. If you want to know, they, they are, yeah. Like that's Spartic, yes. Yeah, well, now it's Fisk, whatever it is for the sniper. Okay, that one too. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, Somebody got I, some OER bullets out of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, what? When was it that you uh, deployed as a sniper? Did you end up uh, going over there in 2009 and 10 as a sniper, or was it not until 11 before you went over there? Let's see. I went over in uh, in 10, 11, and 12. I did three to, three rotations. I think it might be really cool for those who may not know a little bit about the war or were not engaged during that time period to talk a little bit about that period and that the fighting really escalated in 2010 because peace talks were going on between the government and the Taliban. It kind of rose to a, a high political um, agenda at that time frame. Civilian casualties were taking a really high uh, piece of it as well. And um, the Afghan government made great efforts to promote a negotiated settlement with the Taliban and Hezbollah at that time frame. The problem was that there was a lot of conflict that was still going on in the south and the southeast with a lot of deterioration as well and up in the north. And then, uh, what was it, like 183 assassinations just in the first six months of uh, 2010. And around that time frame is also in the beginning of it was in March where uh, Marjah picked up. <clears throat> then in June, we had Kandahar that really got bad. There were a lot of night raids that we were doing uh, against uh, suspected uh, insurgents. Things really intensified in 2010. And I think, I mean, as you know, as you know, part of the thing was in 2011, our country was trying to, to kind of get our people out of there at that time frame. We've already made a decision. And that's right at the heat of the moment in 2010, 2011, when you were seeing a lot of that action. Yeah, uh, we we shaped a lot of Marja in 2009 as Rangers, and then I think it was the Marines went through. I think it was three one Dark Horse, you know, and they were slugging it out. They took a lot of casualties. They created a lot of enemy casualties, and uh, we actually kind of resolved things in South Helmand temporarily. It ended up being, you know, and we were starting to, you know, things had kind of intensified, and it seemed like uh, maybe the Taliban and and these foreign fighters thought they were going to gain ground. And so, you know, things were heated, but they were being becoming decisive for us. And then we made the announcement that we were going to withdraw. And at the same time, um, you know, Karzai was kind of trying to exert uh, his influence and his power as the president of a country should. And, you know, he was hindering night raids. And, you know, I think that the powers that be didn't really realize how how much those not, the entire policy in Afghanistan depended on those night raids. I mean, it was, you know, special operations executed, I think, all of the high value targets that, that happened in Afghanistan with very rare exception. And, you know, you take the take the, the own the night aspect of that away. And that's that's basically, a, you know, 99 percent of the bad guys are getting free reign and they're, and they're getting free movement. So we we knew there were places in Afghanistan in 2011 and 10 that we just had never been into nobody had ever gained a foothold and they'd always been a stronghold for these bad characters and uh you know we're like all right well we have to root these places out because these strongholds are where you know the taliban will gain a foothold and take over the country when we withdraw in 2013 and 14 so you know and these were like uh you know it, it was a much more even match going up against those guys i mean these are the guys that have been underground under the radar operating with impunity for 10 years you know despite 
our massive intelligence apparatus and despite the best efforts of our conventional and, and special operations forces. So well, that's what a lot of people didn't understand too about our enemy is that they were adapting right along with us. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and that was one of the things, I mean, you know, it was quite impressive. I think a lot of people may have underestimated uh, that. Yeah, they definitely did. I mean, I don't think they realized that, you know, they had their own, their own sniper training. They had their own Intel training. They had their own, you know, networks, um, their own supply chains that were completely impervious to, to our intelligence or, you know, to our interference. So, yeah, so that's sort of what we were doing. Uh, we made a ranger task force called Team Merrill, and we were basically, we'd find a hornet's nest and you'd figure out how are you going to poke it, which is typically, you know, send in a platoon, maybe two platoons, and try to take out as many guys as you can. It's typically, you know, 10 to 1 to 100 to 1 um, of known enemy versus us. So, Well, I mean, at this time frame, I mean, you guys were probably given more of the orders, too, to take out as many of those um, high-value targets that you could at that time frame from Taliban and, and uh, Al-Qaeda to identify the leaders to uh, to knock them out. I mean, if we're going to be leaving there, we didn't want to leave that in a bad situation. Yeah, I mean, we it was sort of a twofold thing. It was like contradictory. We had to get as many of the you know, the guys as we could, but we had to, um, stir the pot as little as possible as well. You know, I mean, there was, it was critical at that time to have the Afghan people on our side and have the Afghan government on our side. So, you know, you kill the wrong guy, you just made 10 more Taliban, you kill the right guy, they only get one reinforcement. So it was sort of, uh, it was very delicate. You know, we were very scrutinized. I think every, Almost every single time I pulled the trigger as a sniper, I was investigated, you know, on multiple levels just to make sure that everything was above board. And, you know, I didn't like it, you know, but at the same time, like, we were doing the right thing. They investigated all of us every time we killed somebody. You know, they'd go through with teams afterwards and they'd, uh, you know, talk to the local government and the local um, elders and stuff like that. They'd be like, all right, who were the casualties? And we... You know, there was a zero tolerance for civilian casualties at that point. And we executed that flawlessly on hundreds and hundreds of missions. You know, I mean, across the whole task force, across the entire Ranger task force, you're talking about thousands of missions, you know, with just the lowest amount of uh, civilian casualties possible. And typically those weren't our fault. Those were, you know, the result of Taliban fire versus, you know, our own fire. So uh, it was during this time frame, too, that, um, like I had mentioned, that you guys started seeing a lot of the, the heat of the battle. And what a lot of people don't realize in history is that um, in many cases, when a country or somebody makes a decision and you'd remove somebody out of office or you make a change within a different country or you impose certain taxes or whatever, that there's downstream effects that's going to happen. And over history, over time, you can see how uh, different countries that may have been suppressed at some point end up coming back or the decisions that you made and you wonder where this country came from. It's something we created because we put money into it or helped put that government in into place and now it's doing something that we need to go back and change again and we're the ones that did that and what you're talking about at least in a sniper standpoint is you may be making you may be making those decisions they're going to have those same effects in a micro sense in a very short time yeah. span oh yeah well and, and not just like in it you know like the the ripple effects are very big you know i remember there was one instance where there was a woman with an AK who was trying to ambush uh, a squad of Rangers. I was on overwatch, you know, and I, you know, you don't want to kill a woman, but she had an AK. She was ambushing my guys. So, you know, I shot her completely justified. You know, they did the investigation. They figured out, you know, she was 
her family was a, a terrorist cell, essentially, or literally. And, uh, you know, they did the investigation. Had that investigation gone wrong, there would have been riots, you know, across the whole country. And that we saw that happen in, in other instances, you know, people, uh, you know, wrongly treating the Afghans or, you know, what have you. So, you know, you're like, you know, you got your finger on the on the pressure point of a whole country. And if you make the wrong decision or you haven't read your target the right way and you make a bad call and you shoot the wrong person, everything is getting shut down. All the night raids are getting shut down. All the task force are getting shut down. You're going to button up inside the fobs across the whole country. And then it's free reign for all the drugs and guns and foreign fighters just flowing across the border because they know that you're locked down because somebody made an error in judgment. And, uh, you know, that has ripple effects all the way back to Washington. You know, those are the tapes that Obama would be watching in the war room. So, yeah, collateral damage uh, definitely is not something that our current military can uh, deal much with. And I was talking to my father-in-law about that. We, you know, we basically had to conduct our own SSE to do a CYA of ourselves. And I say SSE, meaning sensitive site exploitation. And we had to make sure that we had our pictures prompt and proper as best as we possibly could um, to make sure that, hey, you know, the Taliban wasn't going to Taliban or Al Qaeda or wherever it was that we would be at, or Jaysh al-Mahdi and all the others that you know, whatever the car salesman uh, type of uh, names for the uh, different organizations, you know, that they weren't going to be able to be like, hey, that was a wedding party, and yep. like we saw in the initial portions of the war, because they were always claiming that these were quote unquote wedding parties, and you know, we were yeah. seeing the Vietnam style propaganda coming from the media, being like, oh, our our soldiers and sailors and airmen are just you know, committing basically murder, and that wasn't the case. Yeah. But they were they were doing a good job to counter what we were doing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean you're exactly right. Like you have to process. You know, it's not just go in there, live through the fight, kill the bad guys. I hope you guys all come home. You know, like you got to live through the fight. But then you have to collect that information as well and put it out uh, through the right channels, or you're going to be vilified. And you think about it like here in the state side, though, too, Paul and Eric. I mean, uh, you know, police officers is an example. If you go and you pull the trigger and you end up killing somebody, or for that matter, even injuring them, but I mean, if you end up killing them, you're going to be placed on investigation. They're going to make sure that yep. you made the right decisions. And they also know that there's always, always going to be a family member or potentially that could come after you from a libel standpoint and, and sue you in civil court, uh, I should say. And, uh, in that case, you know, usually most police officers will do that over and over and over again, especially when they're on SWAT teams or something of that, that nature. And it takes a toll, not just on the fact of the mental side of it, of making those decisions before you pull the trigger, pulling the trigger, seeing the after effects of what that decision just did, and then having to re-experience that over and over again through the family trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of pressure, you know, uh, a lot of pressure to be perfect and, you know, you're by the nature of that requirement, you know, to justify everything you're doing, you're, you're naturally second guessing yourself. Like that's part of the process. You, you know, you just make a decision, weigh it and then execute. And then you have to think, okay, I'm going to be investigated. They're going to go through all of this. You review all the information that led you to that, the choice, pull the trigger or whatever, you know, you're doing all this in the heat of the moment and you might have 10 more clicks through Taliban country where you're going to have to do that 10 more times. And, uh, you know, you can get back and you're tired at the end of a mission and you might be hanging your head a little bit like, shit, I don't know. I I just don't know, you know, so having, we got a lot of support from the the civilian sector and from our chain of command though. And 
like I said, we had the best training in the world and a little bit of sleep, a little bit of coffee and a good talk with your buddies or, you know, care package from home from some pe- random people you don't know. Somebody's church will send you a bunch of stuff, say you're doing a great job and they love you. It kind of helps, you know, you like it helps way. you sort of, yeah. it really does. You, man. You, it really does. You, you bring up a really good point too, uh, with regards to the operational side is, you know, getting that the, in, the indigenous, you know, the natives, whatever you want to say, uh, involved with that, you know, well, that was big for us with a lot of like the psyops. Um, I know up in Sadr city, as well as in like the Diyala province on the Iraqi side, you know, that was big for us because once they saw that, you know, these guys and, that were basically extorting people around them were being, you know, taken away. It was like all of a sudden people wanted to talk and, and, you know, then they saw, Oh, Hey, you know, the, the, the bearded people are bringing us uh, water wells and stuff (laughs) and or food. And, and that was a big deal for a lot of these people. And I think that that's one of the things that um, some of our media forgets to, and some of Americans and globally people don't see, you know, what we do that's outside of the kinetic operations, you know, and like my kids are pretty young and I talk to them and I'm like, they're like, well, you know, have you shot people or whatever? And I'm like, you know, I've saved X amount of lives and I, and it's not like, you know, not like the whole, uh, I can't remember the coast guard movie or whatever right now, but more so (laughs) I don't want to explain that to like my kids just yet, because I mean, couple of them are barely teenagers but more so like hey these are the good things that we did yeah. you know it, it war is ugly but there's also upsides of like you know what what it is that we're actually to do there which is you know yes i, I got it you know we we go there we're running and we're gunning and we're trying to you know cause chaos but at the the end of the game you know what is it that we were really here to do yeah i completely agree you know i I'm sure all of us have had this conversation with somebody who, you know, feels very, very uh, passionately about being a patriot and America first and all that stuff. And I love it, you know, and they'll say, oh, you know, we should just turn it all to glass. And it's like, that's the absolute furthest thing from service members desire. You know, like I was fighting alongside Afghans for a good portion of my adult life, you know, on behalf of Afghans for a good portion of my adult life. Like I wasn't there for Americans, you know, I mean, I was, but where the rubber meets the road, like you're looking at Afghan women and children that you're helping out or an Afghan village that's under the thumb of some warlord that you're Absolutely. liberating, you know, or you're in a firefight and, you know, you got an Afghan squad next to you and you guys are slugging it out with the Taliban. Like that's who you're, that's who our partners are. So, you know, they yep. say turn it to glass. I'm yeah, like, I mean, there truly are brothers in arms. I mean, especially, you know, where you yeah. guys, Eric, there's uh, the whole Iraqi uh, special forces, you know, the ISF and uh, the training that those guys go through. And they're, they're now some of the, the most experienced or um, most combat experienced in some cases, soldiers that are there fighting. And so I, I agree. I think that that's some of the thing that's missed out over here and why they understand what we're trying to do. I think it's just unfortunate that it is a bit like uh, Vietnam. That's how some see it because it has been so long and there's not a point at which you can draw the line and say the mission is over. Even though we said it and we already said we did what we set out to do and the, you know, try to act like the war is over. It's been now 17 years. It's weighing on people. And uh, and in some cases they're totally, you know, it's, it's the thing over there. You think about this new generation, generation Z, I was reading about them and how they're going to now um, come in of age in 2019. And these are kids who grew up in post nine 11 
and in a technology world with global war on terror always being there and they don't know any other thing and for the most part they may not even um, understand what is the you know why it is that we're over there uh, because of the media and how there's not a lot of attention the focus is not there and those types of things yeah uh, and I think that's a huge uh, error in, in judgment and and really you have your head in, your, in the sand if you think that the war in Afghanistan is anywhere near being over you know if anything it's hotter over there now than it's ever been and I'm sure that Eric can say the same thing because he's got some insight you know through his peers that are going you know I mean it is worse there than it's ever been or as bad as it's ever been you know from from my understanding but we don't see that in the media, unfortunately. Yeah. And for obvious reasons, I can't make too many different comments or whatever. But right. what I w- would say is that I think we we have an we have a difficulty among our, our our government has to deal with the fact that we have a society that has a I, I call it the fast food mindset. You know, we mm-hmm. want we want what we want right away our way or i call it the burger king mentality that we want it our way right away and it can't unfortunately war conflict whatever you want to call it it doesn't work that way because there is a process i mean that's why you know in selection we do a lot of stuff that uh, goes through unconventional warfare or i call it inconvenient warfare um (laughs) but but i mean it really is a process because you have to find the right people that are going to be good power players to put in that you know those leadership positions and make sure that you know you work yourself out of a job the proper way Society is doomed to repeat history again if it doesn't understand the lesson that history taught it. And so in this case here, if a society is disconnected from what's currently going on, and it's been this long, I just wonder how long it is before um, people just don't understand it and don't get it. You know, And, and unfortunately, it could happen again because they didn't understand that lesson the very first time, if that makes any sense. It's, it's a difficult situation. Yeah. The similarities here to um, to what we had in Britain in Northern Ireland for for thirty years, and not so much on the conflict um, front uh, front with boots on the ground uh, situation wise, but the political aspect of it. And yes. it, it was interesting to hear you talking about the investigation side, Paul, because we're having guys now who are being dragged through courts for acts that got committed thirty years ago. You know, in Northern Ireland and um, Iraq um, previously as well, which uh, which got kicked out uh, recently. But for you guys, that's a lot safer for you now because you've had that investigation process happen there and then when everything's fresh in yep. everybody's minds. And that's a good comfort, I guess, for, for you, you know. And what you said earlier, it's a little bit uncomfortable and you, you're second-guessing yourself initially. But once that's done and dusted... And then, you know, the, the report's written and stamped, uh, you know, uh, uh, a confirmed um, target, then that's, that's fine. And, you know, we, we're having guys in the 70s and 80s being dragged through court for things they committed in acts that happened in the 60s and 70s in Northern Ireland. That's crazy, man. It's, it's just yeah, so bizarre. You know, and, and not only that, but then their whole lives are being turned upside down, you know, because of that. Completely, and, and the 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 one sidedness of it, because you got confirmed IRA players who are just written pardons, They're just let off, you know. And these guys have been have known to commit bombings and 
whatever atrocities against civilians and they've just been given pardons and just, you know, let go. Yet guys who were doing their job and it came down to they've shot someone because they may have had a weapon and as it always has been in Northern Ireland, somebody would pick it up and run off and there'd be no evidence, you know, and there was no age of digital cameras and everything and there was just no nothing to back anybody up. So, you know, to to get that investigation done with yourselves, Paul, there and then is, is a good a good thing. But, you know, when you talk about the longevity of Afghanistan and how it's it's nowhere near playing itself out, it, that ties similar to, to Northern Ireland, really, and that dragged on yeah. 30 years, you know. Well, I think, too, yeah. i got to ask you about that because, I mean, I think a lot of people are probably going to be listening to this and going, okay, what are the... What are the mental aspects and after effects of that, Paul? And does that investigation, and that kind of brought me to thinking about this, does that clear your conscience to some point, at least an understanding um, of that that it was, you know, the right decision, of at least of, in your in your mind as well as what your government asked for you to do at that time frame and those types of things? Well, I want to be really clear, you know, like I never pulled the trigger on anybody that I ever thought I shouldn't pull the trigger on. You know, there were some situations where, you know, when you're second guessing by that, I mean, you know, everybody I ever shot, regardless of how those investigations have turned, like they all turned out positive. But if they had not, I still would have go back and I would, I'd pull that trigger again because I absolutely had to kill all the people that I killed. Um, and I never killed anybody that I, that I shouldn't have, you know, and I weighed that in my mind beforehand, you know. When I'm second guessing, it's like, okay, am I going to go to jail for doing the right thing? Or am I going to go to jail and end up in Leavenworth for the right thing? But it does, you know, like you were saying, it's 30 years after the fact and they're pulling these guys, you know, from the conflict in Northern Ireland through court. They did the same thing to the Nazis. You know, they send you to The Hague 70 years later and you have to answer for this stuff. And so people are like, oh, like Eric's really smart when he's talking to his kids and like, how many people have you killed or have you ever killed anyone? And like, that's something that I don't think you should necessarily talk about so openly I don't think that you should, um, you know, relish that uh, in a sense because the Taliban is not off the bargaining table. Somebody will rule Afghanistan. That country's been around for thousands of years. It's going to be around for thousands of years. And you're answerable for the things you've done until you're off this earth. And I think that a lot of guys don't understand that. I try to convey that to a lot of my buddies or civilians that, you know, want to ask, like, oh, how many confirmed kills do you have? For one, I don't know. And I don't want to know, and I don't care, and I'm not going to share that information because this conflict is not over, and we have not won, you know what I'm saying? And we may find ourselves, you know, we were partners with the Mujahideen, and we may be partners with the Taliban at some point in the future because that's how messy international politics really are. And, uh, you know, the Taliban's killing ISIS in Afghanistan right now. That's fact. I you believe uh, so, we were partners with the Taliban and armed them when they were fighting against the uh, the Russians. Uh, although I don't yeah, know that I, to be certain, but I believe uh, history kind of tells itself, you know, like you said. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think relative to some of the people who potentially could be in charge in Afghanistan, the Taliban is not the worst option. I mean, that's not to say that that's what it, I, I would like to see. Absolutely not. But, uh, you know. That's a different culture. It's a different, that's a completely different discussion. You know, the point is that, you know, the war's not over and you're, you know, just because you got to come home uh, or you haven't deployed in five years or 10 years or 20 years, like that doesn't mean that you're not answerable for the lives you've taken. And I think on a human basic human level, you know, um, I have a lot more respect for all the people that I killed than, you know, just about anybody else 
with the exclusion of, you know, fellow, fellow service members, because at least they put their money where their mouth was, you know, and they met me, you know, and they gave, they gave it up, you know? And, uh, I just think, you know, in the moment I met the people I killed, they had that conclusion had to, had to come to its end right there. But before that, you know, these are somebody's sons, you know, and they probably weren't a terrible son or these are somebody's fathers and they probably weren't a terrible father. Like somebody loved these people and somebody cared about these people. For, so for me to gloat over that or to brag about that or to, to enumerate it as if it's some sort of feather in my cap, I think it is just, it's disrespectful, you know, to that human being, you know, they might be fucking terrible, horrible people that were blown up Marines and I'm glad that I got to do what I got to do. But, you know, that's between me and yeah, you somebody make a, else. You know? Yeah. You yeah. know, so just to be clear, um, we're sitting at a ranch here, and that's a horse that's making that sound. It's not Scott. So if you guys are listening <laughs> to this, and it sounds like it's an inappropriate time for somebody to make it sound like they're blowing yeah. that off, that's not the case. So, yeah, that's uh, her. <laughs> uh, at this point, I think it'd be really helpful to tell the listeners and stuff that you have written a book and have shared a lot of your experiences, some of which we've talked about today during the podcast but there's a lot of other information that you go into in a little bit more in depth and that book can now be found out at um, amazon and yep. on your own personal website and so i want to give uh, you to have an opportunity to give a little shout out give a little bit of information about the book what the title is where they can find it and those types of things okay so the book is called when the killer man comes it's about uh when i was on a special task force of rangers uh and we were working with some other people as well and it was in 2011 and 12, and we're just trying to stamp out these, basically these dens of iniquity that had not been touched, you know, in the, the eight to 10 years of war. Um, you know, these were our equivalents as far as the enemy goes. They were their version of special operations, their assassins and their high-speed snipers and their, you know, logisticians that were able to get things done and run the shadow governments within Afghanistan. So we went after them, and, you know, we're basing this intelligence on just vapor trails, you know, just the thinnest shred of evidence that nobody would ever act on in good conscience. Um, and the odds were, you know, always stacked against us. You know, we were very, uh, very much outnumbered um, and definitely under, under-informed from an intel aspect. And you're, we're just out there like we have to present ourselves as both a juicy target and we have to give them an incentive to kind of coax them out of their lair and come and meet with us. And we did that quite successfully so uh you know it's a pretty it's a pretty fun ride you know i really enjoyed writing it um it was difficult at times you know to like try and relive these experiences and frame them in a way that other people could understand uh as well i processed a lot of things about it you know but the biggest thing you know the biggest reason that kept me driving forward with this book and why you know i mean it's been a three or four year process getting this done is uh nobody knows what rangers go out and do it at night and nobody knows what special operations go out and do at night and they don't even really know what conventional forces are going out and doing and what we're facing day in and day out and just how good these guys really are you know i mean i was lucky enough to be uh, a ranger and to get go and get to fight with these guys who are my heroes you know like since i was a little kid i've thought you know seals rangers sf just anybody in the military like those are those are those guys are heroes you know, so to get to go and see them work, you know, and, and be part of their number was a huge honor. And uh, they're the kind of guys that like Easy Company from Band of Brothers. You're not going to hear this story for 80 years until they're all we're all old men, you know, and half of us are dead. And we might struggle our whole lives and be misunderstood our whole lives. And to me, to have the opportunity to 
dispel any um, misconceptions and and cast light on the the honorable and noble things and the sacrifices that these men made. I mean, that was the biggest honor for me. That was my my driving force. You know, there's some cool sniper stories in there about things I've done. You know, but but really, what the story is about just what it takes to walk that line where you have to be an efficiently ruthless killer and you cannot make an error and you can only, you know, you have to execute that flawlessly and honorably so that the people that you're serving, which is the Afghan people and the American public, uh, are safe, you know, and, and are not, um, I don't know, kind of lost words. I don't, I don't know how exactly to explain it. I do it better in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so you're having the book. No, man, I love it. So, and you can find it both at Barnes and Noble. I know for sure, but you said you had a personal website as well that they can order the book from. And what was that again? Yeah. So you can find it on my website, 33 degrees publishing.com. Uh, my book's up there. Nick's Nick Irving's book is up there. So you can get a, a lot of insight into Ranger snipers and those books sort of lend themselves to each other as a progression of how the war went you know, and how Rangers sort of have evolved um, up to, you know, the end of my time in service. Um, you can also find it on Barnes & Nobles. It's available for pre-order. You can find it on uh, Amazon.com. It's available there as well. And uh, it'll be um, officially on shelves uh, across the country on October 17th. So, um, cool. yeah, it'll be everywhere, every state. We're working on getting into APs. So if you're oh, even Oconus, yeah. Yeah, if you're Oconus, you'll get a chance to do that. And, you know, there will be a book tour over the next year and a half, um, just working out those dates. So Awesome. Well, I know that uh, one of the things that you know we'll tell the listeners is, of course, this is, I think, like I said, the third episode that you've been on. But moving forward, you'll on occasion join us here as a host, and we get a yep. chance, and you'll get the chance to turn the tables on another guest uh, and, and fulfill a different role and or just shoot the crap with the rest of us here on a topic. So that'll be kind of cool. Anyway, for this podcast episode, man, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. I think it's going to help a lot of people because it'll tell a lot about what the message you just said about what you're trying to explain within the book. But not only that, um, help those individuals who are thinking about going to special operations. And regardless of whether it's Ranger, PJ, whatever the case may be, you're going to go through some type of really crazy selection that's meant to weed people out and meant to find out who can really handle the types of challenges that are going to be met thereafter. It's not just to to play games and have a whole lot of fun. There's a real purpose behind each of that uh, those segments of those trainings to ensure that they're getting the best of the best and people that can handle the kind of rigor and stuff that's going to happen thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not all dirt bikes and parachutes. <laughs> no doubt. Uh. <laughs> hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or mentors the number 4 mil at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.